0: Up next, on episode 44 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the enduring influence of C, the questionable value of the title Software Architect, and the evolution of Java from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Are we on president number 44 now? Maybe.
1: I, there's a question as to whether you count that guy that was president twice. <laughs> and wasn't there somebody who was president for five minutes?
2: Ah, uh, gosh, I don't know. My American history is not
1: good enough to cover that. Sure, but anyway. anyway. 44. Do we have a do we have a do we have a a, a podcast guest? Well, no. Or? No,
2: I had I had some ideas but nothing really worked out. We got next week maybe. Did you want
1: to play that song? There was a song. Nobody likes us. <laughs> That's not true. There was a there's a guest. We have a guest song. Um, I don't know, let's look on YouTube if I can find it. Yeah. What was it? Um It was
2: about uh. It was a parody of Let It Be, as I recall.
1: Right. It was something about the C programming uh, language.
2: Yeah. I actually contacted that guy. Uh, Yeah. Oh, did you? I have a link here. I'll send it to you. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I contacted that guy on YouTube, but every time I've done that...
1: Yeah, go ahead. No. No.
2: Go trouble. Friends and colleagues come to me. Speaking words of wisdom. Right and see.
1: Right and see. <laughs> All right, enough of that word. Uh, <laughs> that
2: was very funny, though. I enjoyed that. It, it was... is a good one.
1: It's a nice hardcore. Uh, uh, so, what do you so You actually contacted this kid?
2: Well, I have. In the past, when I wanted to contact people on YouTube, you can use the little contact form because I have a YouTube account and I contacted him explained okay. who we were explained who you were who I was and of course there's no response at all <laughs> <It> <laughs> which is pretty that. typical i mean youtube is just not a great messaging uh mechanism
1: no i would the first thing i would do if i posted a video on youtube would be to install some kind of like email electrification zapper nuk nukifier to prevent ever being contacted by anyone yeah that.
2: So we, we'll just yeah. have to do an excerpt there because we weren't able to get official permission from the author, uh,
1: or the artist, rather, on that particular it's, song. Uh, yeah, he's probably not paying the proper royalties to the Beatles anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, we'll link to that from the show notes. An awesome song, Write in C. That's right. Joel's
2: favorite song, Write Everything in C. Because Joel does, in fact, write everything in C, don't you, Joel?
1: Um, I've started using a little bit of um, C99, the latest version of C. It lets you declare... Your variables after you've written some statements. Isn't
2: there like a well? No, there's a C plus plus. There's another version of C plus plus coming out like OX something.
1: Yeah, C plus plus OX.
2: Yeah, but the, there, there's That's no change really to be called. They
1: just haven't decided what year it's going to ship yet. Oh, I see. I don't know yet if it was O eight. I guess now it's either C plus plus O nine or or, or nothing. They're kind of running out of O's.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, obviously, as not a C programmer. Uh, I don't really keep up with that stuff, but occasionally.
1: You know how I had lunch with? um, Brian Kernahan. Oh, right. That's awesome. How how did that go? Uh, You know, he told me what he thought was the one mistake in the C programming language. Uh, He wrote the book, The C Programming Language, um, but he did not invent C. He worked with the the folks that did. The language he invented is called AUK, Um, uh, among other things, probably. Um, but, it, but it's an awesome book, and he said that the, probably the only mistake in C was the operator precedence of the bitwise logical operators as compared to the equality operator. He thought that the bit, bitwise logical operators should be higher priority than the equality operator. And other than that, he thought that there wasn't really a mistake in language, and I, I tend to agree with that. I would say that's kind of true. And It's not yeah, that big a deal.
2: Certainly, it's been wildly popular. I mean, C has... It's the backbone mm-hmm. of a lot of programming. So by that measure, it's wildly successful. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think you... The criticism that it's, you know, it's a very low-level or medium-level language, is just that was by design. That was the intent of C.
1: It was also... I mean, don't forget the, the context. It was 1978 right. or something, right? Yeah, it was a really long time ago. Yeah. So you, get, you have to put things into context. And, and so there's stuff in C that I would consider accidental complexity, like stuff that you have to manage yourself. Um, like like memory management that you have to call Malacan for yourself that uh, you don't have to do anymore because we've just figured out ways to let the compiler and the runtime do that for you with garbage collection or with memory, even with the reference counting like they had in Visual Basic. Um, so, you know, there's stuff in C that, that just doesn't have to be in a programming language anymore. Um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a, a good programming language for its time.
2: Absolutely. No, it's been hugely, I mean, influential. I mean, C Sharp... I mean, JavaScript. So many other languages look like
1: C, which I'm kind of bitter about. Actually, <laughs> well,
2: I was not, never a big fan of sort of yeah, the that way it looked.
1: That wasn't C. That's um, that's Algol, right? I mean, that was C was looking like Algol. I mean, those are those are all the languages that are the structured programming languages that are meant to look like Algol 68.
2: Right, but I blame C because okay. it was just well, it was just so much popular. I mean, I don't, I don't, actually don't know how popular Algol was, but certainly as long as I've been a programmer, C was like the the touchstone, cornerstone language. And it seems like a lot of language decisions like in Java and C Sharp and other languages were made just so that people wouldn't <laughs> look at the code and freak out because, like, I don't recognize this. This doesn't look like code I understand. Uh, mm-hmm. So they made it look, you know, similar to C to reduce the the learning pain, I guess you'd yep. call it. And I, I, I'm a little bitter about that because I've always felt that I, I just really disliked the look of C uh, really as language, yeah. I really So clean and 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 mechanical. Well, for one thing, the curly like when you're braces. ending when you're ending curly braces, you never know what you're really ending. Just another curly brace. I guess it's kind of like the list problem. You know, you have parens. You never really know what the parens are closing. I guess I would just this is just a preference, but I would like a little bit more verbosity in the ending of blocks that I I can know exactly what type of block was being ended.
1: Versus just, but just things. knowing the type. I mean, that's that's a weird thing. It should, you know, the, the the other programming language. There were programming languages that where the ends the end matched the the opening of the block. Mm-hmm. So like basic, where you say, you know, if and if, if things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, I mean, what if you have nested ifs? You still don't exactly know which one it goes to.
2: Yeah, that's true, but. It's really just a trade-off. It's it, it's just a preference. It's not written in stone,
1: obviously. Uh, the the one I thing kinda I like, uh, I kind of like in Python the fact that you just don't write an end. You just unindent, and so the the indenting actually reflects the structure.
2: Yeah, no, that that was a really cool aspect of Python. I've never really worked in Python actually at all, but I always respected that choice. I thought that was a really brave choice yep. uh, to make the white space, you know, carry the meaning and actually enforce the white space. I thought that was very cool. Uh, and one thing I do agree with, you know, again, coming from a basic background, which is the language I knew for a long time, um, mm-hmm. I eventually grudgingly agreed that having carriage return be your line terminator is not
1: a good decision. <laughs> well, that's Unix. That's not really.
2: <laughs> well, no, no, no. What I mean not... is like in, in basic, like, okay, so in C sharp or C, uh, until you put yeah. the semicolon in, it's one line.
1: Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant like the line separator. Like no. whether it's carriage, carriage and line feed. No, 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 that's not. You're talking about, yeah, the semicolon versus just the line ends.
2: Right. At first, I was bitter about that because I was like, oh, I have to type this stupid semicolon at the end of every line. But then I realized it gives you so much flexibility because there's a lot of situations you get into in in basic where you want to continue the line, so you have to use some crazy, like, line continuation marker, like underscore. it's an underscore. Yeah, it's an underscore. But it just—it's it, awkward. Well, it, it's just awkward because the, the semicolon way I think is much better. Uh, and I think any language you have to have an explicit line terminator. I, I don't think it's a good idea to use you know carriage turn as a line terminator in the language.
1: Hey, do you know what um, Brian Kernighan's second most favorite programming language is? What's that? Basic. <laughs> Basic. <laughs> really? Is it, did yeah. he
2: tell you that today? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. No, it's true. He said that's sort of, sort of a secondary language. He's like, are they ever going to come out with another version of VB6? Because I really don't like VB.net, he told me. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, he's done a bunch of stuff. Like, for example, he had some kind of uh, uh, big complicated library that did all kinds of interesting sol- optimizations. And it really didn't have a very good UI, like, input-output thing. So they did all the UI input-output through Excel, where you would just, you know, type things into a spreadsheet. And then he had this VBA code that ran, um, that basically linked to these com objects that were written in C um, uh, to interface with them. Cool. Um, But in his class, he actually, I think he teaches a little bit of Visual Basic, a little bit of com programming, a little bit of, he does all kinds of stuff. A little bit of awk, a little bit of command line here, there, and the other thing. This, that, and the other thing. Right. I think it's important for programmers to, you know, especially at the college level, to, like, learn uh, a lot of those little languages, and to use the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff that I think, like if I if you give me a problem that most people would solve with Perl or awk, I, I might solve it with Excel, like in kind of in a one-time way. Like if the problem is you've got this big old file and you need to separate the first name from the last name and put the phone number and capitals and multiply this by that and just some kind of like column-wise kind of problem. Uh, you know i'll often just do it in excel because i know how to do that really fast and really easily i i agree
2: with that and i've actually talked about this in a blog post before but i i see the future of languages as lots of little languages that are good at very specific things and if you could just switch between them like in a very fluid way to when you're like oh this is a set based problem or oh this is a database problem or you know oh this is a text manipulation problem and then you sort of drop into the language that's really good at that thing yeah. um, I'm a big fan of that. I never really liked the idea that, And I think a lot of developers, let me give you a specific example, they, they hate SQL for some reason. Like they really don't like using SQL as a language or manipulating it. So they come up with this huge layer of abstractions just to get rid oh. of SQL.
1: Yeah, stuff that they probably should just be doing. Yeah, and if, it, if, to me it's just so contorted.
2: Yeah, it's if so they contorted. A
1: more about select statements. They would realize that there's a better way to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, SQL has its faults, to be sure, but it's really good at, you know, basic set-based sort of data manipulation, I think. Like, I
1: actually like SQL a lot. I, don't, I realize it's that, not perfect, but... Yeah, the biggest weakness, especially in SQL Server, is um, any kind of interesting string manipulation that you try to do... Oh, it's painful, It yeah. just falls all over the place. So if you're just trying to do something where it's, like, you know, splitting on words, or, I don't know, just, just anything in between the, the the columns, inside the columns... Right, Uh there's just not enough functions there. Like they don't even have the proper like left, mid, inster, like the most basic string string functions. Um,
2: well, we actually created a user-defined function to bring .NET regular expressions into SQL Server. Yeah, um, you can actually use managed code. It's not super super
1: fast, obviously, because it has to like, call out to .NET on like every. Why is, so how many how many years has SQL Server been out that they can't put regular expressions in 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 the SQL? What is it? TSQL. Yeah, I was really shocked. I was really shocked because... They're on version 2,090 million. And it's just <laughs> an obvious thing. Just, just go freaking put regular expressions in there. I know they're not fast, but we're all... Everybody has to... You have to write com objects now if you want to use a regular expression in your SQL select statement. What year is it? Well, it's not a COM object;
2: it's a, a .NET managed code object, so it's not quite not quite as bad as COM. But you, there's definitely a huge speed penalty because you're you're transitioning well, if, between those two worlds, right?
1: Yeah, if you do it in COM, it'll be nice and fast. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, but yeah, and then and then your SQL queries can crash the whole machine, <laughs> right? <laughs> or leak memory, or God knows what. Uh, yeah sometimes it just it just surprises me. It's like what on earth could they have added to SQL two thousand and eight if it wasn't that? What the hell did they add?
2: Well, one thing, remember we talked about the uh, the the Oslo, the modeling language? Um, hmm. the DSL thing we yeah. talked about. I know before. now I'm gonna say something
1: bad about it. We're gonna have to have three episodes in which we get all kinds of Oslo model, modeling
2: architects. <laughs> well, maybe what this is partly about is like sometimes as a programmer you realize that you're trying to solve a problem. And sometimes the language itself is sort of getting in your way, you know, at some fundamental level. Like, it's just not good at X, where X is, you know. Like, in the case of SQL, it's not good at string manipulation. So the language is getting in your way. So what do you do? You, You could sort of roll up your sleeve and say, what if we could change the language itself? And this is where you sort of go down the rabbit hole, I think, to, like, Lisp and, like, you know, Ruby and those languages where you can sort of redefine the language and sort of write constructs that perform the same as the language
1: uh, be careful there. Somebody's getting out their getting out their email program. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> if you, you don't agree with email. that, okay. Well, okay. Let's go on. Let's let's, let's carry on that, that thought.
2: Okay. Well, that that's as far as I was going to go with it. I, I oh, think okay. sometimes you want to fix the problems like in the language. Fix you don't want to, you know, shell out to another executable or you know come up with
1: some other Rube Goldberg type solution. You want to trouble. The trouble is, with the exception of Lisp. The languages that are powerful enough to fix the problems in the language don't have these problems. <laughs> so you never really have to. <laughs> with the exception of Lisp, where you start with a language that has nothing and a yes. really good macro capability so that you can extend the language to make it into whatever kind of language you want as long as you like parentheses. And that, that's all very cool. But, I mean, the truth is that most of the languages I use either don't have the problems... Or they're just not extensible enough to fix the problems. Um, so, to give you a great example, um, C is not quite extensible enough to do what I, let's say that the problem that I have is that I don't like to declare the types of all the variables and the, the arguments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I just want a dynamic version of, of a language, or like maybe that's my problem. Well, C can't fix that. They're getting closer and closer. They got that var thing now, but it's not really a dynamic language. There's all kinds of places where you can't use that. Um, but the language is not powerful enough to fix that part of the of the language.
2: Well, let me give you a more more basic uh, example. So, like in C sharp, one thing that's I find to this day very very annoying is when you do string formats, you're doing substitutions within a string. There's all these cool you know parameters you can use to figure out you know what type of data you're going to substitute and what it's going to look like and things like that. But all the actual substitutions themselves are numbered. So you know curly brace zero. This, curly brace one, curly brace two, which based is... based on the order of the parameters. Yeah, it's based on the order of the parameters. And you're like, well, why can't I do named parameters? Why can't I give this a name like, you know, last name? <laughs> and say, that would just read so much better than, you know, curly brace zero <laughs> if it said curly brace last name. Yeah. Uh, and you really can't do that. I mean, you can come up with some extensions and, and some sort of workaround kind of stuff. Uh, but you can't fundamentally go in and, and you know... Add your own native function that does it that just mysteriously appears uh, in the runtime, whereas in, in a language like Ruby, I think that's pretty common. When you if see some, you can
1: f- do that if you wanted to. If you wanted to write your own little templating, string formatting thing, you could do that and C, couldn't you? No. In C sharp, I mean- uh, you you can you can write
2: an extension method, but yeah. it's not really the same as making it part of the language. It sort of just exists only in your code.
1: Right, because it won't work for other people's libraries that are going to call the built-in, the regular built-in format no. and thing and stuff.
2: No, I mean it just depends I mean it. It does work. I mean you can write your own function and you know you can call it, but at some level you want to just make a global fix to some of this stuff because you realize there's some essential wrongs in the world <laughs> that you want to write, um, or at least for some version of it you want to write those wrongs and. Mm-hmm. It's not really possible in these, you know, C-sharp being mostly a static language. One cool thing they are doing, actually, is they're doing named parameters to functions now. I don't know if you saw this in C-sharp 4.0. Uh-oh. You don't like named parameters? So if you have, say, seven parameters, you can call them in any any order as long as you specify the name of the parameter that you want. That is a
1: little bit useful because it makes the code that's calling the function have the ability at least to be a little more self-documenting.
2: That's right. So if you have seven you know, parameters to a function, you're only using the last one. <laughs> right. You don't have to put in you know, null, 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 comma, three.
1: <laughs> that may not be. I mean, why do you have a function that takes seven parameters and you only need to use one of them? Like, how well, about? Yeah. I mean, why not make it a class that has seven properties and you only have to set the ones that you want to set?
2: Well, this is about <laughs> flexibility. This is about naming things versus order. It's really the same as the string problem, isn't it? Yeah. For some situations, you just want to give things names and
1: call them. Of you know what? I, like I like the name the name parameters because um, the, I, I actually personally made them put that into VBA um, because we had a lot of functions in Excel that took a lot of arguments, and sometimes you really only wanted to use you know the third and the seventh, <laughs> what, depending on what the function did. And usually, when you looked at the documentation for those functions, it was because the docu- the functions were defined in a bizarre way. Like the documentation would say. If you provide the first argument and the third argument, this prints a a piece of paper. If you provide the second argument and the seventh argument, this emails a letter to the email address in the seventh argument using the formatting of the template of the second argument, unless you also provide a seventh argument, in which case it rolls the dice and decides whether to um, turn off the screen or blow up your Macintosh. (laughs)
2: I agree. I mean, a, pr- a
1: parameter is... You're like, boy, yeah. wow, if these, these arguments were
2: named, this would be so much easier. <laughs> right. On, on uh, some level, I agree. You should be asking, like, if you have a function with seven parameters, the question you should be asking isn't, how can I call the seventh parameter very easily? But, like, why the hell do we have a function with seven parameters? Right. But, Shouldn't there be another function that just takes
1: the seventh yeah. parameter? Maybe that's it, just a different... Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. But it, it, to me, it's a different discussion.
1: But I do agree with it. Like, when you see stuff like that, you should question, of course...
2: Um, right. But well,
1: I, I, I didn't. Um, so I'm mea culpa. I did not question this. And I just knew that we had a lot of long functions that took a lot of arguments in Excel. And um, so I insisted on this named parameters being added to uh, VBA, which they did. Um, and they had to use the colon equal syntax because the equal syntax uh, would do a Boolean expression and, you know, either pass true or false. Um, so they, in order to name the parameters, you had to use, I think, colon equal because colon did something else. And that was the only way they could do it in VBA. So they did that, and then lo and behold, when we converted all of the old Excel macro functions into the more object-oriented model for Visual Basic for Applications, where instead of, for, instead of having a function called move window that takes, like, 18 arguments, and they all do different things, we now had a window class, and it had a bunch of parameters, and if you wanted to move it, you changed the left and the top, and then it moved. Um, and lo and behold, when we were done making that nice object-oriented thing, we didn't have any functions left that took a lot of arguments with a couple of tiny exceptions. Um, And so the named arguments feature turned out not to be as important anymore. Whereas if you look at the previous versions, like if you look at word basic 1.0, every dialogue box had a function corresponding to it. So if it was like the format paragraph dialogue box and format paragraph has 83 little edits in there that do all kinds of things set the line spacing and the indent and all those little things, there would be a format paragraph function that would have 83 arguments and the only way you could specify which ones you actually wanted to change is using the named arguments. Right. Wow, well, we went into that a little bit too deep. I feel like we've got everybody now turning, turning us off. <laughs> well, let's uh, switch gears. I have something else. Like some oh, sorry. What?
2: <laughs> That's a great song. <laughs> so we did have one milestone on Stack Overflow that I was sort of remiss in talking about it on the day it happened. Stack we actually overflow. had Stack Overflow. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, our 100,000th question was posted. Really? And no, I don't know what the actual question was. <laughs> it keeps coming up. Uh, it's hard to tell because deletions affect the order, right? And occasionally it gets delete. Well, stuff. what's the one that has 100,000 as its ID in the database? That happened a long time ago because we share IDs for a bunch of stuff, for like questions and answers share IDs, so. Oh. Yeah, those are both records in the same table. We don't really distinguish in question and answer in that way. Is that the
1: thing? Like revamp?
2: No, no, that part's not really changing um, because the difference in a question and answer is pretty minimal. I mean, questions have a title and questions have tags, but other than that, they're mm-hmm. pretty darn similar. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we just have those two fields. Well, there's actually more than that. There's a bunch of fields that are null, but it's just easier to have in one table. We think. Um, So, anyway, we don't know which which was the exact 100,000th, but that happened sometime on Wednesday, February 25th, so that was an important milestone, so congratulations to all the Stack Overflow users who got us there, that was nice. The other thing I talked about in in the blog post was that Jeff Dalgis set up this thing called Cacti for us, have you heard of this? Cacti is like a graphing aggregation tool, it's an open source tool that'll take a bunch of inputs from typically networking and, and servers, and just graph sure. it for you automatically you can just give it all these inputs and it'll do weekly monthly
1: daily all this that really cool graphing stuff just like to make pretty pictures to put up on the wall in your bedroom
2: uh no we want to keep track of what we have it set up to do now is look at our bandwidth cuz we were a little concerned about bandwidth we're trying to cuz we changed hosts and we negotiated a certain amount of bandwidth and we were concerned that we were exceeding that and it turns out we are actually substantially (laughs) exceeding what we thought we were using because we changed from the old billing method we had was just purely based on how much bandwidth to use in a given time period Uh, and I think we had 1250 gigabytes per month which Mm -hmm. we didn't even really get close to Uh, but the new billing model is what's called 95th percentile burstable it's burstable billing at the 95th
1: percentile that's what almost everybody does
2: yeah, and it's it's a little bit harder to calculate, but it's based on your your highest burst period for a certain amount of time ninety fifth percentile ends up being like i don't know thirty minutes so if you if you
1: spend thirty minutes at you know what you, eight, do is you they they sample your bandwidth usage uh like every minute over the course of a month and they throw away the five percent and the highest that are the highest I see. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of weird, but Cacti does this, like, by right. default. So doesn't, just, doesn't your ISP give you, like, our, our ISP gives us things where we can look at these reports on their side on their port, and they can tell us, oh, this is how much you are thrown at us. And so uh, we can they see. They might, you know, but I think, I think Jeff was familiar with this Cacti tool. It's pretty
2: easy to set up. It didn't take mm-hmm. him, it took him, like, maybe one day, if that. And now we can see ourselves. So the answer is that we're using, uh, at the 95th percentile level about six megabits, which ends up being seven hundred and fifty kilobytes per second.
1: Which I thought was really actually quite high. Seven hundred and fifty kilobytes per second? Kilobytes per second
2: at our at our So peak. that's
1: like uh like a massively like a saturated DSL line.
2: Uh like no it'd be more than that. So, okay, that's almost a megabyte per second, Joel. So oh. that's yeah. I mean think about it. we're close to getting up to a megabyte per second. <laughs>
1: Um anyway, so for for what it's worth. Okay, so ten megabits. They usually yeah. do these things in bits for some reason. Yeah, I don't like bits. Like to me I, I know, and it's ten to one too. It's not fair.
2: Yeah, bits versus bytes is annoying. I always have to refer to bytes because I just think bits is a ridiculous unit of measurement. I mean but unless you they do. That's standard. I know. Well that doesn't mean I have to
1: like it. So I, I, I put both notations. Is that just like you got the stop bit and the start bit and just an extra bit for the
2: I researched this a while ago. I don't remember the rationale. I don't remember. Yeah. But, you know, kilobits versus kilobytes. Uh, so we we actually went through, and since we were using more bandwidth than we thought, and realized that text overflow... Text overflow. <laughs> <That is laughs> our no site called, anyway. <laughs> it's, it's stack overflow. But what I was trying to get to is that most of our site is text. So in yeah. a way, it is a text overflow. Because if you look at our site, what images are we serving up? The logo? The logo. The vote buttons? I mean, these are tiny, tiny images, really. Yep. We're hardly serving. And we don't do any image hosting locally. So any image that you see on the site is from a third-party site almost by definition. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're going through, you know, 750 kilobytes per second at peak of just pure text and compressed text at that. Because for a long time, we've had the GZIP religion, which is that everything you serve should be compressed because it's just an utter no-brainer to compress. Because you have just ridiculous amounts of CPU time and, like, tiny trickles of bandwidth, Plus, it just, it's a better experience, right? You get the page faster. It's just better any way you slice it. Uh, the only time not to do it is, for some reason, every CPU you have is pegged at 100%. Then you don't want to yeah. be doing compression, but that's such a rare case. Uh, so we revisited. There were a few edge cases where we weren't compressing. I found out that in IIS, I think 6 and 7, it will not compress anything that's that's sent to a proxy. Like, if it sees proxy
1: oh, IIS, IIS 6 won't even compress anything that comes from a program. So
2: yeah, six, yeah, 6 had some issues. 7 does it, finally, pretty acceptably. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but there are some caveats, which is that if it sees it's a proxy, or if it's HTTP 1.0, it won't compress. Now, the other weird thing is that a lot of proxies, for some reason, will say, hey, I'm an HTTP 1.0 proxy. What the like, hell is HTTP 1.0? I know. This is the thing. HTTP is like the oldest standard in the world, almost. No, I but mean, I mean, it's 10 been years old. Yeah. It's been like 1. seven years. It's like, can we move on to 1.1? I mean, what's the yeah, problem longer, here?
1: Longer than that, I think.
2: Yeah, we were really surprised. There was, a, there was a lot of A, proxies, and B, proxies that reported
1: themselves, hey, I'm HTTP 1.0. So I they weren't getting compressed. With HTTP 1.0, maybe I'm getting this wrong here. I'm pretty sure HTTP 1.0 doesn't have, like, get where you give it the URL, including the full URL. I I, I looked it up uh, when I wrote this blog post, and I couldn't really
2: tell what the difference was between 1.0 and 1.1. I know it's somewhat significant. I just can't remember the details. I couldn't find a good article on it. Probably probably because the world has moved on to 1.1. Nobody gives a crap about 1.0. No, I don't think
1: you can even host two sites on one machine with two different top-level URLs on the same IP address. I don't think you can do that with 1.0. I think one point you need 1.1, because in 1.1 they finally realized you specify the entire URL in the GET line instead of just the. Because originally there was an assumption that once you got to a web server, there's only one web server living there for one top level domain in DNS. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you have, you know, a.com and b.com running on the same IP address. With HTTP 1.0, you would just connect, and you'd say get slash, and wouldn't know what to send you, so you couldn't do that. And so HTTP 1.1 corrected that and said, now you have to say get HTTP colon slash slash a.com slash. So, right. You know what I mean? No, I, I know exactly what you mean, because it's all... And tri- so I'm pretty sure... Letters. Yeah. And the idea of multi-hosting, it goes back to, like, 1995, pretty much. Like, like, it, like HTTP 1.0, like, literally did not work. I'm probably getting this all wrong... Well, the
2: point is that HTTP 1.0 is ancient, and yet there's a yeah. lot of proxies out there that are just happily Big telling the world, hey, I'm HTTP 1.0, look at me. <laughs> and I sees that and like, guess what, you don't get any compression. And we actually saw quite a bit of traffic from proxies. And can you, um, so, but what if you send them the
1: compressed version, then what do they do, the proxies,
2: proxies? Well, that was the other thing. Well, the other ironic thing is a lot of these proxies would report themselves as 1.0, and then at the same time, in this very same request, they would say, give me compressed content. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm not entirely sure compressed content was even valid for 1.0. I couldn't quite tell. Uh, but, yeah. So, anyway, we resolved the proxy issue. We also had an issue where feeds, RSS feeds, weren't being compressed due to some of the vagaries of ASP.NET MVC, the version that we're running, which is still not the latest version, unfortunately. Uh, we resolved that. So, everything, every, every bit of text you see or can retrieve on Stack Overflow should be compressed, um, now, the question that you were sort of inferring there is, can you force compression for clients that don't even ask for it? That's I mean, sort of that the nuclear option. Like yeah, Where you're technically only sort of supposed to serve up compressed content if the client says, hey, I want compressed content if you can give it to me. So it's a little sketchy to <laughs> take a client that didn't ask for it and just sort of force it down their throats. I don't think, hey, maybe I, I don't know if we guys,
1: can Some guy's command line web browser thingy that he, they just wrote. Not that they deserve to be. It great. is
2: irritating because I would go into the sniffer and just watch the traffic, and you do sort of wonder. It's like, why are these? And you know, the worst thing is crawlers that are not smart enough. Like I think Alexa's crawler is so dumb that it won't even request uh, compressed content. Now Googlebot does, and I think other well-written bots do. But there's no reason in this day and age to ever send anything except for compressed content, HTTP content over the wire.
1: Is there anybody alive anymore at Alexa? You get the feeling that that was just like they wrote that in 1997. And then they fired all the people, but they forgot to turn off the servers that operated. <laughs> They're <laughs> still out there. Uh, I read their little blog. Yeah, I know. I mean, you, huh? I, they have a little blog,
2: and I read their little blog. and yeah. Is it still an IE-only toolbar? The well, yeah. Use? So I guess let's give some they background for the, take the take listeners who aren't familiar with it. Alexa. So Alexa's claim to fame yeah. was that they could tell... Any, for any website, how much traffic they were getting, theoretically. From IE. From, well, that's the question. Is like, well, how could they do this? And the answer is they had a, a browser toolbar, the Alexa toolbar, that was installed on lots and lots of versions of IE. I don't think it's true anymore, but in the, the bad old days, it was in lots and lots of versions of IE. So, no, I mean, you had to install it. People would download
1: it and install it, allegedly. I don't think it came with IE. Really? I thought it was bundled yeah.
2: in some such scenarios.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, Maybe on some, like, oh, I bought a laptop from, you know, Walmart, and it had 48,000 things, including Alexa. But mostly they would just tell people to download it, and some small percentage of people did, and they decided that that was, uh, that was good enough.
2: Right. So they were relying on essentially sampling, which is they the sample is audience, people on the Internet who happen to have Alexa installed would go to, say, you know, Walmart.com. That information would be transmitted to Alexa, and Alexa would make an assumption. Well, if this one user went, that's representative of thousand real users. Um,
1: and there was always but a that's lot just of. Like, this is from the. Uh, yeah, because it's, the, the data is absolutely meaningless, and none of, no reasonable people have the Alexa toolbar installed. So they always under report if it's an interesting website. I mean, how many programmers do you need that need one of those little crappy toolbars that lets you. It's like, do you remember when there were the websites that let you change the cursor to be like a little Dobert? Mm. Comet cursor, remember that? Come you man. go to these websites and be yes. like, Would you like to install the Comet cursor ActiveX control? Ooh. You will be able, and you go to Dilbert, and then you would done. The Dilbert website, your cursor would turn into like Dilbert, and his tie would be the pointer. <laughs> remember, remember,
2: you know a lot about this. You know a lot
1: about this, I'm going to say. <laughs> a lot of people installed that, that that damn thing, and they're like, It's only a 10 kilobyte download or whatever.
2: Yeah, I guess. I, I always had the association of Comet cursor with like uh, spyware and malware and stuff like that
1: right but they, that was that was. i don't think there was any necessarily malware maybe there was maybe early there. on there wasn't but i think quickly
2: that was one of those things where the business model just devolved so rapidly <laughs> yep.
1: eventually they're like well we can take over half of your screen and show you viagra flat Viagra yeah. from now until the end of time and prevent you ever installing it and at least then we can make a buck
2: yeah yeah that's that's the whole unfortunate part of computing history. I remember when that started, because I think that was like, gosh, I want to say 2001-ish, where that started. It was before that. Was before really? that because
1: I was still at Juno, when this was all happening. Yeah, really? It was before, Yeah.
2: Wow. God, it, it went sour so rapidly. The idea that you could yeah. just install stuff to sort of... Oh, all those ActiveX
1: toolbars and stuff. Alexa was just one of them. But there were these little toolbars that would just give you all kinds of... There was a hot bar, and they would just measure all kinds of stuff on the website that you were on, and... Yeah, um, you would have like a toolbar showing you sports scores that would be like rotating and showing you you know whatever kind of crap news headlines.
2: Yeah, I guess that was a dark time. I guess we really still aren't out of that time. I think there's just a little bit more of awareness around you know don't install software unless you really need it or you know yeah uh, just doubt right, the store. software.
1: You still go to your uncle's house, and you're like, he's got that Windows ninety five system there, and he opens his browser, and he's got like forty three toolbars. You're like, what are all these toolbars? Delete all these toolbars. Like, no, I like those toolbars.
2: Yeah, that's why I like, you know, Google Chrome because it's it's very much like it's very Apple like, and then it's a you can't really modify it too much. It's just sort of good out of the box, and you can't manipulate it too much. You had a whole. In fact, I was just on your site reading about. Th- that blog post you had about the customization that nobody wants when, like, in yeah. Windows, I think it was Office 2003, you could start dragging the menu bars around.
1: Oh, you still can.
2: Yeah, and, uh, and I had the same reaction you did. It's like, who does this? All it does is yeah. lead to people who accidentally drag the menu bar to some crazy position. Right. You know, it's just the type of customization. It's
1: like, don't even put it on the table or, or hide it behind, like, ten option dialogues. They did finally get rid of that in the new Office UI. Yeah. Well, but yeah. for a while, what they were doing is just, like, they gave you an additional command to lock it. Right. So, like, now, it's like, oh, you lost your toolbar? Well, drag it back somehow, and then lock it, and then you won't lose it again. Yeah, that's
2: great. So, yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, customization is very much a double-edged sword. I think you want to hide it behind one of those little those little guard things you flip up to flip a switch, like the, the switch mm. that launches the missiles. <laughs> like in the fighter jets they have this huge cowl over the switch so like you have to flip the you know thing up right. to
1: actually even no, get right but it. even then even then it's just like if you get it wrong you're even less likely to ever find it again and be able to fix it because you didn't even realize that it was customizable like they have the the settings on a macintosh if you want to change any of the settings for safari there's a command line way to change the secret hidden internal settings Mm-hmm. cuz Basically, I guess this, the, the Safari or the, the Macintosh architecture has a thing that's kind of like a registry, except that there are like command, wa- command line ways of setting, setting these things. I see. So if you want to change you know, the look and feel of your toolbars or something on Safari, you've got to type magical incantations. But that just means that you've changed something and somebody's like, why is the Safari on here busted? And they can't even find it in any of the dialog boxes. They can't even figure out how to ever fix it. So they have to come to Stack Overflow. And then we ban them for asking a non-programming question. You want to take a (laughs) listener question? (laughs) Let us, yes.
0: Yeah, Jeff and Joel. My name is Brad. I'm a developer in Denver, Colorado. Um, I listen to your podcast all the time. And my question is actually uh, not how you get rid of incompetent programmers, but how do you get rid of incompetent architects? Thanks. Oh, oh.
2: well, do architects really count as programmers? What is an architect? I, I object to the term. Me too. That's I, what I don't I think to term. <laughs> I don't think the term has validity. I think at the point in which you're reaching to be an architect, you've kind of already gone wrong. <laughs> I know a lot of people might disagree with that, but.
1: No. Yeah. There must be something about enterprise programming that you and I don't know that would require an architect. Well, maybe it's a career path thing because I will say that you know, having
2: worked at big co, mm. you know, there's a career path which is you want to be an architect because you make more money and you have more authority and you become like Thought the business. Uber the uber programmer, but that's just a titling issue
1: that has to do with your paycheck. Right. But I think you're sort of imagining that you don't have to write code anymore. You get to just architect it.
2: Well, right. And that's, that's where it goes
1: horribly wrong.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's the danger is that you spend so much time in the ivory tower that you sort of forget all the limitations of the code you sort of have these grandiose ideas of how things should work that become slowly divorced from reality. <laughs> so the people working under you are like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is never going to work. And you're like, no, 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 it's like this. And you just, there's cotton candy and there's rainbows. And you just, you know, you get soap involved. And, and I can whistle- just imagine
1: you're sitting there, you're you're working in one of these big companies and you're working really hard on their, whatever their big gigantic database insurance monitoring application is. And you're getting good stuff done. And then one day, some architect is like, hey, I'd like to do a review meeting with you guys. And you're like, oh, God. And you go into a conference room, <laughs> and he's got these UML diagrams up on the wall yes. everywhere. And he's passing out CRC cards and, and trying to figure out what the objects should be and what the architecture should be.
2: So let's, let's try to answer his question, though. It's like, okay, so conceivably, you work in an organization where there's I, one. I don't
1: think. Yeah. Well, is I it, would recommend not having uh, – I, 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 to me, the, the, the idea that there's a title of architect, that you somehow – that's just like – that's the ultimate achievement and it doesn't make any sense to me. All software that is written has to be architected in, in that way that they're using the word architect. And it doesn't make – and it's something that all developers have to do and they have to do it well. And it's not something that you just leave to a different – like it's a different job. And it has nothing to do with architecture either. When you think about what an, an architect actually does in like designing a building, you know, mostly they're trying to figure out how to make like the the wire from the exit light like not go through the ceiling at the place where the sprinkler head is. You know, that that's what that's what they do. It's they the, the architects do sometimes the lowest level things. Somewhere there's somebody who designs the shape of a building and then just leaves it to some younger people to implement. But but yeah. I I think it's almost disrespectful of the actual architects that work in construction to use that word to refer to some kind of highfalutin, big-picture, UML-drawing, basically, code monkey.
2: So, okay, so let's take the question at face value, which is you have one of these architect guys who's not very good. Uh, Short of defeating him and becoming the good architect who does it the right way, um, how would you sort of... I guess
1: combat this. I mean, what would you do to if you had? It depends. A, obviously, it depends entirely on your position within the organization. So, if you are the architect's manager, fire them. <laughs> right. Short of like you know, radically changing the company. I,
2: I think, gosh, this is really tough because I think the implied problem is that that person is in a position of of significant power. So they're not going to be taken down very easily.
1: Somehow, I'm imagining that that per- person is in a position of significant political power. But they don't actually touch the code in any way anymore. Like, like they're friends with the the CEO because you know they they you know they were the CTO and they co-founded the company and uh-huh. they have all kinds. Of. But sometimes, actually, I, I've seen actually two kinds of companies. I've seen companies where the person who claims to be the architect is a not very good programmer who joined the company very, very early on, is extremely senior, doesn't want to write code anymore really, just wants to come in a couple of times a week. Mm-hmm. And this person is easily, easy to neutralize because you go to their meetings with the UML diagrams and the CRC cards and you play their little games and then you go back to your cubicle and you write your code. And nothing they do has any impact on the world, it just doesn't matter and let them feel important if they want to. Probably they just want to play golf and that'll be happy and then there are the companies that just use architect as a title basically when the Java programmer with two and a half years experience starts getting itchy and starts saying, what's the next level of promotion? You know, I want right. to be able to tell my family that I'm moving up in my career and I'm sick of just being a regular programmer. I've been doing that for a whole two and a half years. I'm, I'm starting to become, you know, extremely, extremely senior. And then these companies will say like, all right, fine, you're Java architect level three. And it means nothing, of course. Right. Boy, are we bitter? You and I are bitter. Did, did, a, did an architect kick our dogs?
2: <laughs> well, this is one of those things where I think the terminology sort of gets in your way and hurts you. Um, I yeah. think it's hard to be a good architect because I think the title is really, really flawed mm-hmm. on so many levels. So I think if, if you yeah. if you work in an organization where you have the level of power, do away with that title. That's how strongly I feel about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then if, me, if you don't, try, I let's, think let's give it. I, I want to give it the absolute maximum benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Like how would like i i I know what architects would say they would say M- my job is not figuring out what the code will do or how the various functions will work and I'm not even responsible for designing the code. I'm responsible for figuring out like the big picture of like what the architecture of the code is so so for example, the architect might decide we're going to use a plug in system where there's a basic level of functionality. And it's going to have the following seven plugins, and the architect might define what those plugins are, and maybe try to define what the interface is between the plugins and the code, and say this is going to be the big picture architecture, right? Is that does that giving it the most benefit of the doubt? Possibly, is does that sound like an architect's activity? I
2: suppose, but to me, it's just you know it's just software engineering, you know. So uh, you can be more experienced at it, or you can be less experienced at it, but it doesn't really change what you're doing at a fundamental level. I don't think there is this architecture job it's kind of an illusion yep um and frequently an abused one i think that's the problem is like i see it abused so often and like the architecture astronauts you talked about it many times it just becomes actively harmful
1: they actually like to call themselves architects. there was a group called the apps architecture group at microsoft that used to um that's i guess that's the architect who kicked my dog and um they suddenly decided that Apps architecture includes macro macro languages when I was responsible for the Excel macro language. And, you know, they kept calling me into their stupid meetings and showing me their UML diagrams, except that UML hadn't been invented yet. So we had to go backwards in time for that. But um, forwards in time, we had to jump forwards in time, write some UML diagrams, and go back. Uh, And um, it occurred to me suddenly that they were trying to invent an architecture for the macro languages and automation and and, and programmability inside Excel without knowing exactly how it would be used. They had no understanding exactly how how it would be used. And for some reason, they were just enamored of this idea of subclassing. And they thought that the most important thing was the ability to subclass Excel's objects. Now, Excel didn't have objects. Excel was anti-object oriented. And so I said, can you give me an example, please, of subclassing an Excel object that you want to be able to do? that you think is an important use case for the Excel programmability story. And they, I think this took them a day, but eventually they came up with the idea of, all right, let's say that you wanted to be able to double underline something in a cell instead of just single underlining it. And I said, well, we have single and double underline. And they said, okay, well, what if you wanted to triple underline something? And I said, okay, you probably wouldn't, but fine. Let's say that you want to triple underline something. So, to, to them, for whatever reason, what they came up with is the most important thing that they could come up with that Excel had to be able to do uh, as in terms of a programmer that wants to customize Excel was that this programmer was going to add the ability for Excel to add triple underlining um, and so anyway, they were really completely and utterly wrong, and um, I, they, they eventually got got shut down by force because well, I think you.
2: You've illustrated an important principle here, which is that the architecture implies divorcing the people that are doing the work from the people that are making the decisions. And this is always, in my experience, super, super dangerous. So to the extent that the architecture group or the architect is not really with you in the trenches helping you do the work, they're not going to make the right decisions. They just don't have any of the information. They don't have any of the context, they don't have any of the information. That is, I think, the root problem that I was trying to get at. And I think your classic example is a perfect one. And, and to the extent that that's happening, architecture is dangerous. Now, if you want to have somebody on your team who's an architect that's actually with you doing the work, that's probably fine. I still don't really like the title, because I think it leads yeah. to other, you know, pathologies. But, yeah. It's usually symptom
1: of pathologies. It indicates an organization that you know, there's somebody that's frustrated in their career and they're going to be made happy by being told that they're an architect. And it, the, the, either they're continuing to do the same work that they were doing before and it's just a fake title that you give them and so you're not really going to keep them happy for very long with that fake title. You know, that might make them motivated for another six months. Or uh, it, it means that they're going to go off and do this so-called architecture task which is basically busy work that has no relevance I'm sure maybe our listeners, if you know of an organization, we're not going to get into any, but if you are a listener and you know of an organization that has somebody that's called Architect, and they're actually doing something useful that sounds like architecture, that's not just writing code or designing code, mm-hmm. please call in and tell us about it. Yes, yeah, sane, sane uses of the architecture title. I'm yeah. interested. Did you, let's say that you went into, I don't know, some gigantic investment bank. And you found that they had eight thousand different places that were calculating foreign currency exchange rates, and they were all basically using the same numbers, but they were getting them eight thousand different ways. And you said, "You know what? We got to fix this for the bank because we're we're we got it's just too hard to figure out foreign currency exchange rates." And so you decided to architect a foreign currency exchange bus, which will be this gigantic network that everybody plugs into, and they can. They can suck up, or maybe you decide to make it a web services architecture where there's a URL that you can hit anywhere in the bank and get foreign currency exchange rates all, all in one place. And making decisions about whether that thing is a, um, you know, a bus or a subroutine library or a DLL that everybody can call or a web service, and whether if it's a web service, is it REST or is it SOAP, and you know, what languages can you call it from and what are all the interfaces, maybe making those decisions. You could maybe call that architecture, but then again, maybe that's just something that the FX currency trader programmer should have done in the first place.
2: I think that's a good example of maybe a sane use of the architecture title is if you're looking at stuff at a high level, because a lot of the individual groups can be very enmeshed in the things that they're doing because they lack context about the broader organization. So if there's a lot of duplication going on, that would be a nice role for the architect to recognize that and say, hey... And you basically would go around and promote to the different groups interoperability and things like that. I don't think the correct answer is to set up some grandiose scheme, but to just make all the groups aware of it so that they say, hey, stop what you're doing for a second and realize that we have this huge amount of duplication in our code. Let's start thinking a little bit about that. Um, Because I certainly saw that happen at BigCo when I worked there. It's just hard to see anything except for your problems, whereas the architect might see the organization.
1: And maybe this is why we think that the architects don't do anything, because just to keep up with what all the groups are doing requires going to every single group and talking to them every couple of weeks. Oh yeah, it would take up easily all your time. time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's nothing you could really do about that. Um, I just realized that today's podcast, this is going to be a really good drinking game podcast because we've talked about C, we've talked you've yep. talked about Excel. I think yes. I said pathology once already. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
1: Now, uh, now all we got to do is forget the phone number for the Stack Overflow Yes, podcast. forget the
2: uh, – everyone's already totally drunk by now if they've been playing <laughs> the Stack Overflow podcast drinking game. Uh,
1: do we have another – that was a great listener question. Do we have any more? Um, uh, well, I got some that I can, like, kind of read. I don't have any, like, audio, audio Let's ones. Let's do one more. Pick one that you like. All right. Here we go. Changing database schemas. Oh, no. Don't want to do that one. Never mind. Uh, all right. Here we go. Um, Greetings, Jeff and Joel. I've posted my question to the community hive mind. What's that? I guess Stack I guess. But I wanted also to try bouncing this off you more directly. I graduated with a BS in CS around the time of the tech stock crash. Let's call that 2000. Unable to find a programming job in the flooded market, I went into IT. Here it is 10 years later, and I'm ready to take aggressive steps for getting into the career I want. Unlike other questions here, I've not had the option to program in a work situation. I don't have that to put on my resume. I already have a degree in CS from a smaller college, so what do I do? Get another bachelor's from a more prominent college? Pursue a master's? Just take some online night classes? Just keep on chipping away at personal programming projects? Apply blindly to junior developer positions and pray? If you were considering my application, what could I add to interest you? Thank you so much for the website and podcast. You managed to be affable and interesting while being intelligent. They talk about me there. Um, This is harder than one might initially think. Thanks, Ben. Username LiquidBen.
2: So I guess... Think about it from a hiring perspective, Joel. What would you look for in somebody... So we're talking about somebody who doesn't have a lot of programming experience or yeah. has just
1: recently made the transition to being a programmer? Uh, really has no programming experience. Went into IT, by which I, I get the feeling that it's a lot of help desk and configuration things. Okay, yeah. so
2: you're looking at somebody that sort of wants to be a programmer and wants yeah. a job at Fug Creek. It's like, what would yeah. you look at? It's like, okay, this person is going to
1: be a good programmer, yet no, yeah. we don't yeah. have a big track record yet. Let me be completely honest here. Um, this is... This is, this, you, there's a screaming red flag here, which is that uh, Ben has not done anything to demonstrate that he loves programming. And ah. the, the trouble with programming is that it takes thousands of hours of experience with programming to be good at it, mm-hmm. and you have to love programming to get that much experience. You can't...
2: So, so the you, fact that... Okay, I get it. So the fact that he was putting it off at all means yeah. that he, he, if, you're, if you're not just sort of drawn to it and just doing it by default, then it's
1: kind of a red flag... <laughs> Yeah, it kind of is. And maybe it's just for like like, Fall Greek level programmers. Uh, and I don't, think it's not, uh, I, I don't think it's not curable. I mean, you can cure this by becoming addicted to programming and really loving it. Um, and maybe he is. Maybe I'm just missing that from his email. Um, but he does say that he doesn't, hasn't really programmed in a work situation. Um, yeah. Also, that's kind of a 10 years. It's a really long time to wait doing a job you don't love and then suddenly wake up and say, Hey, wait, that was the job I really liked. So uh, this is this is the um, this is the the, uh, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is what you have to overcome, and is this perception? I think that um, you know, right? If I if I get a resume from somebody that went to a good school, majored in computer science, took all the computer science classes, worked really hard at them, and got A's, that that is not enough uh, to be a programmer. You don't have enough. Exp- that 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 person who just did an undergraduate CS curriculum. And even got straight A's does not have enough experience as a programmer to be a good programmer. They just don't. You have to do more than just the undergraduate curriculum. Um, you just need way more experience than that to be to become a programmer. And um, fortunately, there's a lot of people that l- love doing it so much that you know in high school they did it and they during college every single spare. Minute of spare time that they had, they were either doing a gig for somebody, or doing a co-op, or an internship, or writing their own thing, or adding some open source thing, or trying to start a little startup with a friend where they wrote some code to do something, and um, and that's how most developers get the level of experience that they need to 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 get that programming. So we're not really answering Ben's question here. We get a lot of career questions, but I am just sort of being honest, which is that you know, um, I, I I the the weakness. Um, uh, to, a, to a lot of people, to get into a programming career, um, to me, I would say, is, you know, it just doesn't look like you have uh, enough passion or love of programming, um, which leads to the experience, which leads to the, uh, uh, being good at it.
2: That's a tough love answer, Joel.
1: Sorry. Well, maybe I'm just <laughs> misreading. I, I don't really know what, 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 what Ben's situation is. He might have actually done a lot of coding.
2: You know, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned the, the Fog Creek programmer because you've totally freaked out, like Jared, who works with me on Stack Overflow, who's one of the best programmers I've ever worked with, thinks yeah. he's not good enough to work at Fog Creek. He's like, no, yeah. I, I couldn't make it. There's no way I could make it into Fog Creek. They've <laughs> totally freaked him out. <laughs> just well, for the... I
1: mean, just because you can't eat fire and stuff. <laughs> you don't have to be a fire eater. <laughs> we, we have an alternate plan where you walk across hot coals with bare feet. And then you don't have to actually eat fire. Nice. Nice. Uh, I, th- I think uh, almost by definition, you could be a Fog Creek programmer. I don't know why he thinks yeah. that. I couldn't be a Fog Creek programmer. I agree. I, I, I agree. The truth is... Well, um, the, I think
2: good programmers are humble. And I think that's why a lot of the good programmers think, I can never be good enough to be at X. And that's good because you know, it means you're essentially humble, which is, I think... I'm worried uh, about uh, that. I, I think people afraid. are
1: afraid to apply. People are afraid to apply to work at Fog Creek because they think that...
2: Well, I, I think they're afraid to apply any place there's, you know, stringent vetting because nobody wants to be rejected. Ultimately, I mean, who wants that, right? So it's unavoidable, I think. I don't think you can avoid it. We and it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like our, our our that question we just got. We essentially rejected that call. <laughs> I don't know if you <laughs> noticed that, but uh, we rejected that call.
1: So. Yeah, we were point. like, hey, dude. Nope. Forget it. No. Yeah. Um uh, what should he do? He has a degree in CS from a smaller college. Should he get another bachelor's from a more prominent college? No, it's a little late for that. I would say pursue a master's. Yeah, I've known people to do that, actually, and <laughs> that's not a bad idea. Um, Are you serious? Pursue a master's? Are you kidding? Yeah. Go get a, a master's in computer science at a better school. And, Are you serious? In, yeah, why not? Well, you were the one telling me
2: that, like, PhDs and additional education doesn't really count for anything. It actively counts against the candidate for the in the that's PhD race because,
1: because I think that it's going to be somebody like Ben who hasn't, hasn't programmed very much.
2: <laughs> Poor Ben. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, know, I might be getting this wrong. You know what? If, if if I'm getting this wrong, and he has actually programmed a lot, but he just doesn't have the things on his resume, then stop worrying about it, dude. Just go apply for those jobs. You know, as if you know how to program, you'll get them. You can just say, "Listen, I haven't programmed a lot for work, but I've programmed a lot. So here you go." Um, so if if I'm wrong about that, then that's fine. But um, but somehow the vibe I'm getting is you know this is somebody that. Kind of knows that he wants to be a programmer, but just has never really worked at it very hard, or has never really spent a lot of time programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just makes me question why you think you want it, really. Right. So get out uh, there and get a lot of programming experience.
2: I mean, just <laughs> right. And it's not and a like, master's, a second master's in computer science, not a bad way to do that. I disagree with that. I think that <laughs> you want to be out there in the field, like writing a lot of code. I mean, that's what we're really complaining about, right? Is that we're not seeing any evidence he's been out there writing a bunch of code and thinking about mm-hmm. code so g- begin yesterday is what
1: we're saying yeah that's true so okay, i have so a uh, st- Office choices apply blindly to junior developer positions and pray that's a that's a better one, <laughs> <That> one. <So laughs> just get
2: out bye-bye. there and write just get out there and write code however you know you can do it so there i actually have. have a stack overflow question i'd like to discuss oh okay yeah we got to yeah yes stack overflow question yes so, the one I liked was this is uh, 577943. How accurate are the technical arguments in JWZ's 10 year old Java sucks article with today's Java? So, oh, that's a good what a question. It's a great article because, uh, you know, Jamie Zawinski, who's a pretty famous programmer, right. really gave Java, I think, a fair shake, which is he highlights almost immediately that despite Java's problems, the fact that I don't have to call malloc means it's a win most of the time. And this was 10 years ago, so it wasn't like Java was really fast because you know, we had mm. slow hardware, and Java, I think, has gotten faster over time. So even with that, I, th- I thought it was a pretty fair piece, even though it's titled you know, Java Sucks, just a confrontational, exciting title to get people to read it. But there's a lot of really interesting points in it. Like if you go in and actually read JWZ's article, um, you can sort of see how the language evolves, too. Like some of these things, some of these concerns were really valid concerns that he had with the language, and some of them were just fundamental things that can't be changed that were sort of written in stone even 10 years ago and haven't changed. So I think it's interesting to think about, A, how languages evolve, right? Mm -hmm. And how Java has changed over the last 10 years or
1: hasn't. Well, it takes longer to start up now than it used to. And every time you run a little Java game on your phone, it looks at you for about 45 minutes while it's (laughs) up its language runtime and showing you an advertisement, which is probably not the exact time that you want to be.
2: Oh, you you haven't heard the famous knock-knock joke involving Java?
1: Oh, I, I love it. Yeah. I, I've already figured out what it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, knock, knock. Who's there? Who's there? Giant pause, Java. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. but I don't think that's really fair. My, my point is, that the, thing, the second thing I was getting to... No, it used to be faster. It gets slower and slower every new release. I don't think that's really true. I think there's a lot of commercial websites that run Java that are pretty fast. I think today's hardware, I mean, that was 10 years ago, right?
1: <laughs> Actually, I'm, really, so, I'm talking about applets. I'm talking about launching the... Launching the runtime, that's the real issue. Yeah, you're oh. right. You know, the language the language is decently fast, but launching the runtime on a phone or in applets or whatever is almost an embarrassment. It probably doesn't matter. If you, I mean, I'm sure you can use Java server-side and get decent performance. Right. I was just thinking mostly server-side.
2: I mean, I guess I was just acknowledging where I'd actually seen it be successful, which is on you know, web apps, essentially. Uh, and there are some Java, like those servers that we built up. The little yeah. RAID app is actually written in Java. Yeah. Which worked. I mean, I I saw it was in Java. I didn't have a problem with it. It wasn't. Sometimes like-
1: the architect at the raid company has to figure out what programming language to use, so that they can run on any kind of operating system that you might put on that server. And so they they think that Java is right one right one's run anywhere. So they're 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 apt to use languages like Java. Yeah, for, for stuff like that.
2: Right. Well, I just want to have a balanced opinion. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Java necessarily, but I also think it has an important place in computing history and. I I think it's a reasonable choice today, certainly for a I think it's
1: a a fantastically elegant language compared to C++, which it pretty much replaced.
2: Exactly. And I think that was sort of JWZ's, I think, core point in his article, was despite all these downsides, it's still a win if we're replacing C with something we don't have to worry about
1: memory. Now, what happened is that it evolved into being the language that filled that same niche that Visual Basic used to fill. It's the language that you use for making internal in-house CRUD apps. And so it's in-house, it's, it's, you know, this is a massive generalization, but it is the preferred language of the in-house programmer. And in-house programming is um, not very sexy, to be honest. It's not very interesting or exciting in, in many cases. Well, it's and, like
2: the uh, new COBOL, didn't you say that? Yeah. I mean... Uh,
1: no, it's the new VB, and <laughs> VB was the new COBOL. <laughs> so it's the new old COBOL. Yeah. I, I really do think that if you walk into a company today and you find all the programming activities that are be doing, do, doing, being done in Java, and you went to that same company um, exactly, um, let's say, 12 years ago, you would find those things being built in Visual Basic. Mm-hmm. Those things now being built in Java would have been built in Visual Basic. If you went back another 10 and 20 years, that's where you would find COBOL. Now,
2: my one criticism of Java, and granted, I've written almost no Java code, so take it for what it's worth, is that I think Java has developed a reputation, I think deservedly so, for being sort of verbose, like too verbose. And I think a little bit enterprisey in terms of
1: you find a lot of Java developers who think nothing of having just reams of code to do the simplest things. Steve Yegi at some point noticed that you hit terminal velocity where basically... You're typing as fast as you can in Java. It's like basically your fingers just cannot keep up with your brain because the, the language is just a little bit too bulky. Right.
2: And I will say that based on I do know C sharp <coughs> pretty well. I think the the guys at Microsoft have done a good job of evolving C sharp to get rid of a lot of the, the frankly, just bullcrap code you have to type to get things done like just noise code. You know? Just just additional lines of code that don't really have any meaning. They've done a good job of introducing little mini-abstractions that get away with that. Like, uh, you can declare a property using a one line of code now, um, var, keyword. Um, They've taken steps to acknowledge and sort of defeat some of the verbosity problems that sort of creep in over time. I do not think Java has done that. I think Java has gotten, if anything, slightly more verbose over time. (laughs) Plus, there's a culture
1: of verbosity around it that I think is a... Java has a culture of, yeah... And, and this was, in, in some ways, I thought this was nice about Java when I first saw it, is we're not going to give you syntactic sugar because then you're just going to be confused. You're going to have to learn the long way and the short way of doing things. Just do it the long way. And then you never have to worry about which way to do it. Right. Um, so a part of that was, like in the early days, basically just eliminating the number of ways of doing things. So, for example, uh, every time you have to declare a foosbat, you had to say foosbat X equals new foosbat, and you had to repeat the word foosbat, and you still have that to this day. And that's very logical why you have to do that, but enough already. You made your yeah, point. Exactly. <laughs> Give me the shortcut, please. Yeah. Yeah, that's my one de-
2: criticism of Java. Is I feel like they've done a poor job of sort of making the language tighter over time, and the culture of verbosity that's grown up around it is kind of problematic at this point.
1: Yeah. The uh, don't uh, yeah, and and I wouldn't overcredit C sharp. I, I do recognize that in C sharp. They're adding a few things, like you mentioned, the bar and the lambda functions, and they are adding a few things to try to make the code get a little bit shorter and simpler. Um, but uh, that said, um, they're they're not even close to where languages no. like Python and Ruby are. But but it is evolving. I mean, whereas Java for a long time felt very stagnant. Like, they do you weren't... think they'll ever have like Python like list comprehensions in C sharp, where you can just kind of do a big old transformation on a list in, in about one line.
2: Well, this is where I'm going to go back to something we talked about earlier, which is my hope is that eventually, I don't know, this might be a pipe dream, you could eventually just switch languages midstream. Like if you really needed to go to VB, like say you didn't want to have uh, declare your variables, like you're using some sure. dynamic thing, right. you could switch to VB or Iron Python or Iron Ruby. I wish there was some easier way to switch in and out of these contexts and sort of switch languages on the fly. Yeah, I guess not on the fly. I don't know. Like I said, it might be kind of a pipe dream, and maybe that's even unrealistic, but to some extent, I would like to see that happen. I'm not sure how, how much it can happen, but I mean, short of going to Lisp, where, you know, everything is, you're just building language up from scratch, I would like to have some middle ground there. And you, you have this in Java, too. Don't they have, like, JRuby and Jython and all these other sort of ports of dynamic languages to the, the Java runtime? Right To me, that's sort of the future, is like taking a lot of the best parts of these languages and just having a runtime that's flexible enough that you can sort of go with the flow and incorporate these different language features on the fly.
1: Right. That would well, we've got to fly. Our time is up. That's that, true. That Segway. Um, if you have a, a question for, uh, for Jeff and I um, for a future uh, edition of the podcast, it doesn't just have to be career advice. Or if you have a comment on something we said, or if you're an architect and you have a justification for your... Asinine title. Could you please call the Stack Overflow podcast hotline? You can either call 646-826-3879, or you can record an MP3 or AugVorbis file and email it to podcast at com. You can also just email uh, uh, a, a regular email to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com, but We're not that likely to read it. We really would prefer the audio questions. Try to keep them under 90 seconds. And um, please uh, spell your name at some point. Uh, We won't play the actual spelling of your name, but it allows us to get it right in the show notes. The show notes are located at blog.stuckoverflow.com where you'll find links to many of the things that we mentioned in today's uh, edition, including the uh, Write It In C song. And um, uh, there's also a transcript uh, wiki, which is a wiki where listeners from all around the world contribute by writing down some of the interesting things that we've said in the show for the uh, hearing impaired and also just to get them a part of their permanent record. See you next week.
2: See you next week.
0: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.